0: Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged encouraged and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Good morning. My name is Jordan, and as always, just a pleasure, a delight, and uh, I'm humbled to explore the word of God with you this morning. Um, I just want to frame quickly where we've been in case you missed it before we jump into this morning's sermon. Um, Easter is not a day. You Anglicans know that. Easter is a 50-day season. 40 days Jesus walked the earth after his resurrection and then 10 days until um, Pentecost and the sending of the Spirit. And so we celebrate the resurrection for 50 days. Throughout this resurrection season, I am preaching um, a series on Tim Keller's book, Hope in Times of Fear. This is the third sermon, and uh, it's based on chapters 4 and 5, if you're reading along. So I began the series by saying, well, painting a picture of the world's just sobering present reality. I said the pandemic and and mental health decline and political chaos and fracturing relationships with a lot of the political chaos that's going on, surging violence, and now war in Ukraine. Um, Most of us, well, probably all of us, could add to that painful painting just the, the unique contours of our own Um, experiences of grief and of loss and of of rage and and loneliness and exhaustion and fear throughout the last few years Uh, the world is facing a crisis of hope and many of us are feeling it but i said that the reality of the resurrection of jesus means the reality of hope that hope is alive because jesus is alive then last week we looked at the nature of that hope both as a future hope A hope that's brought from the future into the present in the kingdom of God, and a glorious hope. I said the resurrection launched the kingdom of God, which is now present with us today. Well, this morning I want to look a bit more at the unique message and the unique values of the kingdom of God. How do the values of the kingdom of God contrast with the kingdom of this world? And how do they slowly but surely remake us from the inside out? That's the point of today. So would you pray with me? Father, I pray that through your word, you would reveal yourself to us, your heart, your humility. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. An old rabbi was once asked why so few people were finding God, and he replied famously, because people are not willing to look that low. If you are willing to look for God through the Christian scriptures, be prepared that they will point you down not up. And you will find in Eugene Peterson's translation of 1 Corinthians 1, again and again God chooses the nobodies of the world to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies of the world. This is the subversive value at the heart of the kingdom of God, humility, 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 Many of our friends, many of our neighbors, maybe even some of us, have come to think of Christianity as traditional, especially as Anglicans, right, in the robes. Why? Perhaps because they have come to see the Bible as kind of an out-of-touch series of disconnected stories that are just moralistic, and they're meant to sort of chasten us and control us. That's not what the Bible is. The Bible is a coherent story, it's a coherent, one, unified story about how Jesus Christ saves the world through the great reversal of his kingdom. In his kingdom, the poor are rich, and the weak are strong, and the last are first, and the humble are exalted. In Keller's words, here is the great reversal. He says, there are the good things of the world, there are the hard things of the world, and then there are the best things of the world. And he says, God's love, his glory, his holiness, and his beauty... The Bible's teaching is that the road to the best things is not through the good things. The road to the best things is usually through the hard things, the lowly things. This is ultimately modeled by Jesus' death and resurrection, as we'll see. But let's briefly just kind of establish this storyline. Let's trace the storyline through the Old Testament, then let's consider it in light of Jesus, and then finally let's consider how it applies to our own hearts and our own pattern, really, of living So beginning at the beginning in Genesis, we see that God is subverting ancient Near Eastern values in really powerful ways, especially by choosing again and again and again the younger son. The law of promogenitor was ironclad in the ancient Near East, which is to say the oldest son always gets the wealth, always gets the estate, always gets the esteem, but God chooses Abel over Cain and Isaac over Ishmael, and Jacob over Esau, and later on it's Moses over Aaron, and it's the young David who's not even old enough to be a soldier over his older brothers. And second, we see God subverting the world's kind of privileged treatment of of young and beautiful and child-bearing women and favoring older women and barren women. Hagar, the simple-looking Leah over the beautiful Rachel, and so on. We see this over and over and over again. In fact, this subversion is true of God's people just broadly. Israel, we heard it read this morning in Deuteronomy 7. God says to Israel, "...the Lord did not choose you because you were numerous and therefore powerful, for you were fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loved you." So traditional wisdom would have said that God would send His kingdom and expose Himself to the world through the wealth maybe of Babylon, right? Right? or the wisdom of the Greeks, or maybe the might of Rome, but he doesn't choose Babylon. Instead, he chooses a tiny and persecuted minority, a nobody of a nation, a backwater nation, and then he sends them into exile in Babylon. And in fact, it was through exile, and this was a series we did last Lent, um, Flourishing in Exile, it was actually through exile in Babylon that the remnant of Israel, facing extermination and facing, you know, facing their, the end of their nation, it was through that that they actually finally confronted their sin, and they learned faithfulness to Yahweh in a foreign land, and then they grew as a religious minority there, and they learned to worship not in the temple, but in synagogues, which remains the pattern of the church to this day. So Babylon and Greece and Rome, they came and went, but Israel kept a national identity because of exile. David's defeat of Goliath is it's paradigmatic of the great reversal that we're looking at this morning. David was a boy. You know the story. Too young to be a real soldier. His small stature then led the giant Goliath to lower his defenses, not taking him seriously, leaving him vulnerable to a small and lethal stone. Consider that the giant Goliath was not killed by a 60-pound spear that was forged in fire, but by a pebble that was smoothed over eons by the gentle flow of God's rivers. Do you see the hints in the Old Testament that the way up is down? Let's pause for a minute and ask ourselves, is this the storyline we want to live in? Are we prepared to embrace this pattern of living? Are we willing to go low looking for God? This is the persistent pattern of the subversive hope we find in the kingdom of God. Strength through weakness, life through death, resurrection through the cross. Again and again, God saves, not despite weakness, not despite of it, but through weakness, through it. Why is God just a sappy romantic and he just loves the underdog? Well, there's more going on here. And it's this. The small reversals I've just named that we see scattered throughout the pages of the Old Testament, these are actually signposts. They point forward to the great reversal of God's salvation in Christ. Philippians 2. Jesus who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him. The therefore tells us the resurrection is both the reversal of and the result of Jesus' condemnation and crucifixion. This is the persistent pattern of the Old Testament, and then again we find it in the New Testament reaching its zenith in Christ and his resurrection. In fact, the whole Gospel of Mark, if you look at the structure of it, it encodes this whole thing. So the first half of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is doing what? Supernatural healings and deliverance and deeds of power, and he's setting people free, and, and it's, it's like, okay, this, is, this ministry is just headed up and to the right. You know, he has come to conquer. But then by the end of the Gospel, what do we find? His friends have deserted him he's left on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And along the way, the rich and the powerful and the religious reject Jesus, while others receive his message with joy. Who? The lepers, and the demon-possessed, and the sick, and the woman with the hemorrhage, and emigrants, and children, and the blind, and the tax collectors. And that's why Jesus says in Mark 10, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Again, is this the storyline we're willing to live in and pattern our lives after? To borrow Mary's song, after learning she will be the mother of the Messiah, are we willing to embrace a kingdom in which God has brought down the rulers and lifted up the humble? He has filled the hungry and sent away the rich. What does this mean anyways? It's hard to quote that verse without without at least doing a little bit of explanation. This is not a categorical statement that God promotes the poor because they're poor and demotes the rich on principle without exception. God will save people from every class. He will save powerful people, yes. Nevertheless, the subversive, upside-down gospel of grace does tend to find fertile ground in the hearts of the poor and not in the hearts of the privileged and powerful. Why? Because it threatens our self-image It says, you are lost. You are a sinner. Even your best deeds, even your your greatest accomplishments have a stain of selfishness. You are not rich. You are poor. You are not powerful. You are weak. And you desperately need the wealth and the power of God, which can only, only, only come as a gift through his unmerited grace. And the rich have a tendency to say, no, thank you. I don't take handouts. And the poor have a tendency to say, like Mary, my soul magnifies the Lord. One historian summarizes how the Roman world, the culture that the early church encountered, viewed the values of strength and weakness. He says, Ideas of universal human dignity were almost all but non-existent, and large swaths of the population were seen as inherently worthless. And, you know, to this day, our our culture is actually sort of riding on the coattails of Christendom, which which actually brought this value into the world, that people are not inherently worthless. They're inherently dignified, made in God's image. They've taken Christ mostly out of the equation, but this is a deeply biblical belief. Everyone has dignity and value, and the Roman world thought that was insane. Weak members of society were objects not of compassion, but of derision, More than most, Romans lionized strength over weakness, victory over defeat, dominance over obedience. And then there was the way of Jesus. He had a special concern for the children and the women and the poor and the powerless. In a great reversal of the worldly values of his day, Jesus says that the the sacrificial giving of the poor widow who put in just two small copper coins into the offering was of more value to God than the huge benefaction of the wealthy. We're pouring in buckets of coins into the temple offering. Things are not so different today. Imagine that I assembled a, a, like a dynamic consultant team around the goal of making me the most influential and famous person who ever lived. I wanted my teaching and my life to define the spiritual and psychological world of billions of people 2,000 two years from now. What, would, what kind of advice would they give me? <laughs> Imagine, says Keller in this thought experiment, they said something like this. Jordan, if you, want that to be your, if, if you want to see that happen, here's what you need to do. Be born in obscurity. Avoid powerful political or economic networks. Be tragically killed in your 30s before you can write a book. But that is precisely what Jesus did. Showing that the wisdom, his wisdom, is true wisdom. His power is true power. So the humility of Christ, the humility of Christ, it flies in the face of our own prideful grasps at power that do ruin our relationships, that ruin our businesses, that ruin our families, that ruin our politics, that ruin our world. The humility of Christ is the heart of true wisdom. The humility of Christ is true power. In the kingdom of God. In St. Augustine's words, the proud hilltops let the rain run off, and the lowly valleys are richly watered. In St. Paul's words, has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Jews demand a sign, and Greeks look for wisdom. What about us? Power, prestige, success, followers? But, says Paul, we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block for the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and wisdom from God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Is this the storyline we want to live in? Are we prepared to pattern our lives after this story? The great reversal is the most high God of the universe stooping low. Why? Because that's where we are. He came from heaven to earth so we might go from earth to heaven. He was rich and became poor so that we might through his poverty become rich. He became sin so that through him becoming sin, we might become the righteousness of God. His curse is our blessing. The reason God gets low is because that is where we are. None of us is ultimately wealthy and powerful, not really, not Elon Musk, not Johnny Depp, not Amber Heard, not you, not me, none of us. None of us is ultimately wise, really. None of us is standing on the ultimate moral high ground in life. The reason God gets low, like the younger son, the barren woman, the reason he chooses the younger son and the barren women and and the overlooked Davids and and the... the Israelites? It's because that's us. We are lowly, we are poor, we are weak, and quite simply, God loves us. The invitation then is to follow his example. It's to undergo a reversal of our own. Take up your cross, says Christ. Give up your glory. Because the only way to receive God's power and his wisdom and his strength is It's to admit your need. It's to repent. It's to to trust his strength over your own. It's to lay down your rights, your will, your very life like Christ did in humility on the cross. You know, there are some gifts that can't be accepted without admitting a weakness. Um, The gifts of counseling and medication, for example, have been literally life-saving for many and deeply healing for many people. But in order to receive those gifts of counseling or of medication, it requires that that person go and stand before another human being and look them in the eyes and say, I am a nervous wreck or I am incredibly depressed and I need help. You see, to receive those gifts, you've got to humble yourself. So this week, I challenge you to a kind of limbo, not like the state, but like the game in the skating rink. (laughs) You know, growing up in small town Iowa, um, we didn't have professional sports teams. We didn't have a mall or like the culinary delights of a Denver, but we did have a skating rink. <clears throat> and I remember going with classmates or with my youth group at various times, and the highlight of the skating rink was always the limbo, was it not? You know? And the, and the MC, like, low can you go, you know? And then there was always, always that one girl who could do the splits on the skates who would dominate everyone else. <laughs> and so perhaps I can appeal to the competitive among you. How low can you go? How low can you go this week? What if you just set aside this week and said, I am going to make the humility of Christ my goal this week with my spouse, um, with my roommates, with my coworkers, with my children, with strangers on the highway who flip me off, you know, or, you know, what if you tried to just get lower? We've made it a game almost. How low can I go? How can I just radically embody the humility of Christ this week? Because what if, what if the hope of the world is the humility of Christ? Father, I pray that you would um, apply these words to each of us, that you would maybe just highlight one relationship. Um, One circumstance where we can get lower. We can bring your wisdom and your power through your humility in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.